It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. And we, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. moment, 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 moment. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Mic'd Up, an unapologetic podcast based right here in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden. Uh, and this episode, um, yeah, we're going to just uh, do it a little bit different. Uh, I want to feature some uh, clips within this episode from content that I had either curated from way back or maybe over a year ago from within this year um, that I felt was particularly relevant today. Uh, today is Sunday. Today is Sunday, the uh, 7th of October, 2018. And this was a tough week for women. Um, as we all know, elections have consequences. And the Uh, presidential election of 2016 brought about some significant consequences for a number of people. Um, My focus will and always be on marginalized communities, communities of color, African-American communities, uh, indigenous folk, trans folk, LGBTQ community members, so on and so forth. And those are the communities that I I always, uh, I guess, am concerned about. I'm, I'm perpetually uh, concerned about us. I'm concerned about uh, how we will get through this. But I am always reassured as someone who loves learning something new about her own history. I'm always reassured that we will make it through because history has shown us that. And if you follow any of my content um, from the Charleston Activist Network on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, I love digging back into uh, the past. I love digging back into our local history here in Charleston, South Carolina, because it provides us with a roadmap, uh, a roadmap through some of our most oppressive times. And so while it is easy to look back at this week where we witnessed the uh, Supreme Court confirmation of uh, Mr. Kavanaugh, <laughs> a man who has been, um, who has a past that is littered with very, very credible uh, sexual assault allegations and some very um, suspect behavior in terms of his his demeanor, his his temperament during his confirmation hearings. Um, yeah, th- this week has been tough. So we, we witnessed that this week. And um, if you're active in your communities, if you're civically engaged, if you read a paper, if you watch unsponsored news, um, then you're well aware as to how women across the country have been responding. And this week was, was interesting for me because my activist friends, and most of them, are either members of the trans or LGBTQ community or black women. You know, I didn't hear a lot from them. I read a lot of their posts and they were very encouraging and they were very, uh, that's where I get my, I guess my inspiration and and that's where I I re-up on hope and and, um, energy. Uh, But I was inundated by messages from white women. White women, some of which that I call friends, some of whom I, you know, consider to be more colleagues or associates or, you know, acquaintances. But I, I was um, taken aback by how many messages I received from white women 
who either wanted to take to the streets or who just wanted to respond um, and wanted to, um, you know, have their anger be heard and be validated, have their voices heard. And um, all of that is real. All of that is valid. And a lot of that I sympathize and empathize with. Um, But what I quickly came to see or to feel was, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I can reach back to my history. I can read about Fannie Lou Hamer's work. Um, We celebrated her birthday this past weekend. I can read about, um, you know, September Clark's work um, for voting rights here in Charleston. I can read about so many other trailblazing women throughout South Carolina and beyond. Um, and again, like I said, I can I can use that or, or be inspired by that work and be informed by that work um, and, and know that there's hope at the end of the tunnel. Um, but I didn't feel that from the white women who are reaching out to me. And so um, I wanted to make this episode a little different. I'm going to feature clips um, from some prominent vo- or some some voices that I find very uh, interesting and thought provoking. Um, it's a series of clips, um, one from a previous episode that um, you'll find uh, within the um, I guess the catalog of episodes of Miked Up. Uh, you'll find the episode with Sunrose Ironshell, uh, a, a woman who considers herself pre-American. You might look at her and think that she's indigenous, but she uh, identifies as pre-American. Um, and, uh, so you'll find an interview, uh, an excerpt from that interview. Um, and we're also going to listen to, uh, a couple of cuts from some NPR content. And I'll have a list in the show notes where all of this content comes, comes from. Um, but I wanted to include these clips because what they illustrate is that this work, this work that has to be done now as a response to the Kavanaugh confirmation, this work has already been done or has already begun. Let's say that, right? Because there is no really no end point. But a lot of this work has already been started by so many amazing organizations led by women of color. Um, and, and so I want those who are listening, who who perhaps never felt this, this um, I guess, impending doom, I want you to, uh, I, I don't want to tell you how to feel. And I don't really feel it's my job to like cheer you up. I'm here to let you know that the work has already been started and there are a myriad of, of organizations that you can support now whose work will help, whose work will actually add value to women's lives and especially the women's lives of you know women who are poor, the incarcerated, indigenous women, black women, LGBTQ women, trans women. Um, I also want to discuss more about reproductive justice and I want to start that discussion um, about reproductive justice and what that looks like for so many other communities that you might not even imagine um, are impacted by the Kavanaugh confirmation and I'll again I'll, I'll uh, include some links in the show notes to some um, suggested reading and listening um, but uh, yeah so the work has been started and so before we necessarily grab those dreaded pussy hats and take to the streets and, and wearing these these handmaid's tail uh, costumes. Let, let's ease up off that and let's get real and let's stop making this shit a performance and let's start making this um, let's start doing some real work. So um, I'm gonna again I guess transition into those clips. I hope you listen. It's gonna be just short excerpts 
and then um, I'll come back on the other side. J. Marion Sims was a physician who was born in South Carolina in 1813. This is Vanessa Northington Gamble. She's a physician and medical historian at the George Washington University. We asked her to come in to tell us the story of J. Marion Sims, who is memorialized in statues not only in South Carolina, but also in Montgomery, Alabama, and Central Park in New York City. He started a clinic in Montgomery, Alabama. And at the time, in order to survive financially, he also was a plantation physician, where he took care of the enslaved on plantations. This is where the story of Sims becomes complicated. Because yes, the inscription on his statue in South Carolina is true. He did invent techniques that help women to this day. He treated slaves as well as high society. He once treated Empress Eugenie, the last empress of France. But there is something not mentioned on the inscriptions on the statues. Starting in 1845, he started to conduct experiments on enslaved women. And why we talk about Sims today and why that statue was there is that he perfected a technique to repair a condition called vesico-vaginal fistula. And let me tell you what that means. It basically means that there is an opening between the vagina and also the bladder, or the vagina and the rectum, which usually comes after traumatic childbirth. And Sims started in 1845, 1846, according to some sources, a series of experiments to repair these fistulas. This condition was highly stigmatized and dangerous for these women. There was no treatment. So on the one hand, you could say Sims was doing what doctors are supposed to do by taking these women on as patients. But there's another side to what Sims did. He wanted to be a trailblazing researcher. And these women, their bodies, became props in his journey of scientific discovery. These women were property. These women could not consent. These women also had value to the slaveholders for production and reproduction, how much work they could do in the fields, how many enslaved children they could produce. And by having these fistulas, they could not continue with childbirth and also have difficulty working. There are 10 slave women central to the story. Three are named by Sims in his writing. These women were brought to him by their owners. The first woman was named Anarka. Anarka was a 17-year-old enslaved woman who had just undergone a very traumatic delivery. Some sources say that she was in labor for three days. At first, he did not want to treat her. He was not interested in treating women. But then what he started to do from a period from 1845 to 1849, he did a series of experimental surgeries on these women. And he uses sutures to try to close up this opening. Now, presumably, this would have been painful. 
it was very painful. And he talks about how Lucy, one of the three women, almost felt as if she were going to die, that she cried out in pain so much because of, of these surgeries. But at the same time, he writes that the women wanted the surgery because they did not want to have the condition anymore. Were the surgeries that he was performing on them performed without anesthesia? They were performed without anesthesia. There was a belief at the time that black people did not feel pain in the same way. They were not vulnerable to pain, especially black women, so that they had suffered pain in other parts of their lives and their pain was ignored. As Sims's reputation as a researcher grew, he began to invite other physicians to come watch as he performed the surgeries. So this surgery was done where black women were naked. Um, men are really abusive and they, they still are women all the time. Wow, just listening to the effects that colonization had, has, has and had on your community, it, it's traumatic just listening to, to this. And you're right, now I see how colonization has effects on current day issues like women and, and human trafficking and, 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 and uh, domestic violence. This, so, so seeing this close up, did this move you to be an, an activist or a voice? Um, well, maybe it just forced me. It actually forced me to speak up because all of a sudden I'm like, whoa, this is my reality. This is my reality. Okay. Um, I'm always comparing it to this as well. Um, white privilege. There's something I cannot do. I used to also live in Denver. And in Denver, I'd see white women running. And they're running shorts, their short little booty running shorts, <laughs> their, their little um, bra top. And then they're just running. They're just on their daily running. And I could never do that. One, I'm too sexy. <laughs> 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 Two, if someone snatches me up, I'm gone. Right. I'm gone forever. Wow. And um, all it would take is for me to go on a little simple run like that. Maybe maybe they would recognize me as an indigenous woman. Maybe they want it. I blend in here and there. Um, but especially to Native communities like out here in South Dakota, um, we used to hitchhike a lot. Our communities are really far from each other. Maybe about two hours, three hours, everything's like an hour away. So what do you do when you're from a poor community and you're just trying to you know, get over to your family? So maybe you catch a ride an hour away and you get dropped off at some gas station and you're waiting for somebody else to come pick you from the other side, driving an hour away. When that little span of time, a lot of our girls get picked up and there's truck drivers, truckers. You get you get snatched up by a truck and you could be gone. You're gone. And um, funny thing, crazy thing, on my way to Washington D.C. to do that presentation, we were oh we had so many like layovers, but I think it was Chicago. I'm pretty sure um, we were flying over Chicago. And I seen huge, huge um, storage container ships, and it overwhelmed me. And I've I, I've only seen the ocean twice before, 
And um, like I said, I'm strictly great planes, and then I don't really go out. I'm just sticking the planes, and we out here running horses and wind in our hair and everything. And when I flew over those ships, I was so overwhelmed, and I was like, "Wow, that's a ship!" And then automatically in my mind, because this is where my mind goes to, is my sisters in in、uh, human captivity, and that's how they transport. Um, the human trafficking, right, would be in those storage containers. And I'm looking down at this ship that has like hundreds of storage containers on that. And I'm thinking in my head, wow, I wonder if I'm looking down and there's any of my sisters in those storage containers. And then the next day, there was actually a news story that came out、uh, where some indigenous women were in a situation like that. And、um, that was really,、uh, I don't know. Even I'm kind of shook up about it now, thinking about it. But I would rather have、um, seen those ships flying over them than actually being caught and then seeing those ships for the first time. But there's nothing you can do about it because you're, I don't know. My mind just goes places like that because. It's also a reality of things that could happen. So, being an art teacher, a high school of of high school students, I have to make sure they're aware that this is our reality, and that to never put yourself in a situation that you could get snatched up. I'm always giving my phone number out to these、uh, young girls. Like, if you ever need anything, like you know, call me. Judgment free zone. Call me. And I'll pick you up. I don't want to find out you were out there, had to hitchhike from some something. And, I don't know. Right. The M M I W that is real, and more of our sisters go missing all the time. Story of a far less celebrated woman, Reese Taylor. In 1944, Reese Taylor was a young wife and a mother. She was just walking home from a church service. She attended in Abbeville, Alabama. When she was abducted by six armed white men, raped and left blindfolded by the side of the road, coming home from church. Later that night, a colleague reminded me that I had spoken with Reese Taylor myself, with the help of historian Danielle McGuire, back in 2011. So here is Reese Taylor telling her story in her own words. A car running run up side of us. Six young men jumped out with a gun and said it. You the one that cut a white boy and clocked him, and the police got us out looking for you. You get in the car, and we'll take you uptown to the police station. And they got me in the car and carried me straight to the wood. But before they got where they was going, they blindfolded me.、Mm-hmm. After they messed up and did what they're gonna do, they say we gonna take you back. We gonna put you out. But if you tell it, we gonna kill you. Did anything ever happen to、mm. them for what they did to you? No, ma'am, nothing. After that time, and that's a terrible thing to happen to someone. And I'm so sorry that that happened to you. It sure is. How, how do you think that it affected your life? Were you afraid to go out after that and things like that? I didn't go out at night, and then I got afraid of living right there after that happened too, because I was afraid. That maybe something else might happen 
In Oprah's speech, she added another important element to the story. Her story was reported to the NAACP where a young worker by the name of Rosa Parks became the lead investigator on her case. And together, they sought justice. But justice wasn't an option in the era of Jim Crow. The men who tried to destroy her were never persecuted. In 2011, I asked Reese Taylor how she felt about that. Do you feel better now that the world knows that about this? Or I guess you would feel better if you knew that those young men had been brought to justice for what they did. I, I, I assume that would make you feel better, but... Uh, yes, that would make me feel better. I, I, I'm, I just hate it happened to me like that, but it just happened to me, and I couldn't help myself. And then the people there seemed like they weren't concerned about what happened to me and didn't try to do nothing about it. I just get upset because I... I do my best to be nice to people because I don't want people to mistreat me and do me any kind of way and I have to live with it because I had to live with a lot going through with this. Let me add a few more details that Oprah did not have time to tell, such as the fact that the local sheriff knew who had kidnapped Reese Taylor but never arrested them, or the fact that one of the seven accomplices admitted he was there but claimed he was just a bystander, or the fact that... I would consider that a small win, given the fact that what we really want is a more expansive administrative change to the policy. Right now, the changes look like they don't shackle people um, while they're in labor. We would like for them not to shackle people throughout the entirety of their pregnancy, prenatal, labor and delivery, postpartum out to eight weeks, also during lactation and breastfeeding. I would like to see us go from administrative policy to legislative policy because it has more teeth. Right? We know that. And we still have to be diligent. Implementation of a new policy does not always impact practice immediately. It has to be a culture shift. I think people would look at um, anti-shackling campaigns as prison reform, and we don't. We actually look at it as something that's in service to prison abolition. A poem by Bettina Judd, entitled, In 2006, I Had an Ordeal with Medicine. I must have been found guilty of something. I don't feel innocent here, lurking with ghosts. See, it happens like that. I start at a thought that is quite benign and end up peccant, debased. I had an ordeal with medicine and was found innocent or guilty. It feels the same because I live in a haunted house. A house can be a dynasty, a bloodline, a body. There was punishment, like the way the body is murdered by its own weight when lynched. Not that I was wrong, but that verdicts come in a bloodline. In 2006, I had an ordeal with medicine. To recover, I learned why ghosts come to me. The research question is, why am I patient?
I chose those specific clips and that one poem um, to give us perspective, to help us look back and to look to a lot of the, the strong warrior women and femmes who've been doing such tremendous work. The first clip you heard was from uh, a podcast on NPR that is one of my favorites called Hidden Brain. It's, uh, it's over a year old, I believe, and you'll find the information for all of the clips I'm going to name in the show notes. Yeah, so the, f- the first clip was from Hidden Brain, and that one recounted the origin story of Dr. Marion Sims, a South Carolina native. Uh, the next clip you heard was from a previous episode of Mike'd Up featuring Sunrose Ironshell, a pre-American warrior woman who I find to be phenomenal. I encourage you to listen to that entire episode if you haven't already. Then I followed up Sunrose's uh, excerpt with uh, a little bit from Michelle Martin from NPR. And there you heard her play both Oprah Winfrey's famous Golden Globe speech, but you also heard her speak directly to Reese Taylor. You got to hear Reese Taylor's voice from a 2011 interview where she recounted such a brutal and vicious uh, sexual assault, a sexual assault that went without her seeing justice. And And you even got to learn a little bit about Rosa Parks' involvement and how Yeah, she wasn't just a civil rights pioneer in the way that we've come to know her, but she also worked worked to investigate violence against women. And that's amazing. And then after that, um, I believe you heard from Omi Sade. Uh, Omi Sade is with Sister Song, an amazing organization. And I'll link their information in the bio as well. But that clip from Omi Sade... Bernie Scott was from a little piece from um, Now This. You know, we see the Now This, uh, those videos on Facebook a lot and and on YouTube. And so I'll link to the actual video. It's just a a short six-minute video, I believe. Uh, And and in that video, she was working, or she was talking about her work um, fighting for the human rights of women who are incarcerated or pregnant folk who are incarcerated and how they are treated during pregnancy. Um, and I think that work is important. So so when we listen to all those stories and then we listen to a poem um, by Patina Judd where she's talking about uh, the poor treatment she received. She's recounting a, an unfortunate episode in her life where doctors weren't listening to her talk about her ailment. She's an African-American poet Um, And actually, she was featured in that Hidden Brain episode. So if you listen to the entire Hidden Brain episode, she actually reads that poem herself. And you can learn more about her past. But she kind of sums up what's been making headlines recently. Black women haven't been heard by their doctors when it comes to our reproductive health. We know uh, women of privilege and fame and fortune like Serena Williams and Beyonce both have written or had stories published this year talking about their near-death experiences during their pregnancies. And we know that both of those women are women of means and probably can afford the Cadillac of, uh, you know, of medical treatment. But yet, doctors weren't as responsive to their cries for help as they would be maybe someone else. And, And that's well documented. We heard 
Beto O'Rourke uh, talk about the mortality rates among black women, black pregnant women. Um, we heard that very recently in a clip that went viral. Um, I'll try to scrounge around and get that and, and include that in the show notes as well. You know, he's one of the first cisgendered white men I've heard even talk about black women dying um, during and after pregnancy. You know, so I, I mentioned all of this and I, and I included all those clips to show you that there is a perspective. There is a history of women from different backgrounds who've experienced reproductive injustice or reproductive oppression, who have lost bodily autonomy or who've never had bodily autonomy, you know, who've really been at the bottom rung when it comes to having their voices heard and having their bodies feel like their own. And so when we look back and we listen to Reese Taylor's voice and when we read about Rosa Parks' role in fighting for women and fighting against fighting against violence towards women and and we and we learn about Sister Song and the work they've been doing for a while now, we should be encouraged to know that their work, their sacrifice, their pain the pain of Anarka, Betsy, and Lucy, the slave women on which Dr. Marion Sims experimented on mercilessly without any, without any anesthesia. We know that these sacrifices were not in vain and that we've learned from that. And, and our work moving forward should be informed by that history. Our work moving forward should be serious and should be intentional and should always honor these women who've made these sacrifices. And so when we do the work, let's know, let's understand that we're not working from scratch, not at all. Not in 2018. We've got a hell of a, bl- a blueprint to work from. We've got a hell of a roadmap that has been created for us to work from. And it's important that when we post and when we meet together and we ask women of color to make sacrifices or to go silent or to change their you know, their, their social media avatars. When we, when we ask women of color to do all of that, I want you to pause before you ask. I want you to ask them what they need and how you could be of service to them. And then I want you to observe and let a, let a woman of color, let a woman from a marginalized community, let a femme or non-men, non-male, let them lead you. Because like I said, we, we've been well-practiced in this role we've had to manage and navigate through some really rough times in our history. So this is not uncharted territories. Uh, This is not uncharted territory for many women in this country. So there's a lot to learn. So please pull up a seat. Welcome to the fight. But please know your role and know what you're asking of your fellow sister as you join the fight. Thanks for listening.